Welcome to Reliability Leader, a podcast about how leaders make organizations that create reliable technology. Hi, this is Adam Barrett. Welcome to another episode. I am here today with my longtime friend and collaborator, Nelson Rigo. Nelson, how's it going? Good, Adam. How are you? Good. I think first time we worked together was like 10 years ago when you hired me as a consultant to come in and work with your team and advance reliability practices and I always loved your your mindset for how to make you know better products and more reliable products, and you know we just were enjoying connecting again recently and started talking again about just you know I think you described it as thirty years in the trenches, you know seeing these issues and these these same decisions that kind of drive the same. You end up in this. There's a cycle, right? And uh, so I'm like, hey, wait, I'm going to stop. I'm going to hit record. This is an, a great episode. So let's just, yeah, pick up where we left off and, and uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about this, about how these, you know, market, it's, I guess, right, we could summarize it as market pressures of time to market and satisfying the customer and how it forces decisions that in hindsight, you probably regret. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's nothing's perfect. We all understand that we all play a role in, in you know, making sure that customers are happy and shareholders are happy. Um, but I do sense that there's a lack of awareness as to decisions being made on the componentry of a product. You know, when you're sourcing something, um, you know, we, as we've talked about before, reliability is big. How reliable is that component? Yeah. And oftentimes uh, it's based on maybe what a catalog says. Um, and sometimes it's just that's just not enough. Then you start getting into the cycle of uh, products that are failing, um, and then you try to get to the root cause. But as you and I both know, I've never seen to this day a root cause of one. It's, it's, Wait, it's meaning meaning a single error that's occurred, an issue has occurred, and then root causing it. Yeah, you know, it's usually I've seen I because there's so many uh, factors. Yep. It could be a sensor, it could be material, it could be thermodynamics, and all those things added up uh, cause a failure. Yeah. And sometimes the, the root cause is masked by all this other uh, uh, noise. Yeah. And what happens is companies get into this whirlwind of, of then making decisions based on maybe one component, but not looking at the, the total picture. Yeah. I mean, it takes so much work, like a detective, right, to find the true cause of of what's occurred. And um, if you really get down to it, right, it's about all these variabilities. And you just describing there could be a couple of different variabilities that will have to be in the right position and crossover. And that's when you get the failure. So I think one of the fundamental differences between a a reliability engineer and their mindset versus, you know, other design engineers or people that are proponents of getting the product out is, a reliability engineer feels so lucky when they've seen a failure, right? Because oh, we've yeah. gotten this extremely rare opportunity to see when those variabilities can cause the problem, which gives us the opportunity to root cause it and then to find out how to reduce the variability, right? Uh, as many of those that were factors, which just mitigated tons of other failures. And it's this amazing golden nugget to get a chance to know what to dissect and look for, whereas everybody else is seeing it as Ah, it's stopping us getting where we want to get. It's a, you know, then you get all these things. It's a one-off, it's an outlier, we'll get to it, you know. Um, and and I, th- I think you've seen it and I, we've experienced this that through our, our careers that 
um, you know, you can't, you can't put enough emphasis on that, that you product development process. No. You know, if, if you're not, if you're not trying to do some due diligence up front and you need to get to market, it, you know, everyone needs to get to market tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so you have to come up with ways to do the, the, um, the DFMEAs, the FMEAs today. Yeah. You can't skip them because it will catch up with you. Right. You know, you, uh, you, how do you convince leadership? Like what, what's the best, what's the best experience you had with convincing leadership to slow down and to really see what that ROI is and understand what the pain they're mitigating by doing it. I, I truly, I truly believe that the only, uh, top level management executives that, um, buy into it are the ones who have experienced the failure. Yeah. Cause until you've, you've experienced the, the issues of returns or liability or shares going down or your brands getting a hit, unless you felt that I'm not sure if how well you can navigate that space. It's really, it's hard because yeah, it, it is a, a bit abstract and way off in the future. Otherwise I always, come to that analogy of it's the same thing as your your doctor always telling you diet you're overweight diet and exercise you know you're putting yourself at risk of a heart attack yeah 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 whatever then the heart attack happens and then all of a sudden you have a very big interest in diet and exercise but what also what what really amazes me though is the people who don't and we also see those people in product development where they they have all the war stories and pain and still make those same short-term decisions right they they say to the doctor, no, I love my hamburgers and French fries. And you're not telling me I'm not going to have yeah. them. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, I, I've, I've been, I've been fortunate enough to experience companies uh, that have a, uh, a culture of, of new product development and due diligence and uh, truly doing DFMEA and FMEA. Yeah. Um, and, and those companies typically, yeah, it, it's, it's a little bureaucratic. It takes some time. They're not as fast as others, uh, but they're not having the same issues as others as well. How do they keep that in focus? What do you think is in focus and clear to those people that's not to the others that makes them make those decisions of where they say, you know what, FMEA is a great way to through risk, you know, identifying risk, quantitatively ranking it and using it as a way to direct our resource to the critical few things we should get to first versus the people who don't. What what is the awareness and what are they uh, communicating to everybody else? So yeah, you know, I think, I think um, it's going to sound cliche, Adam, but I mean, it's, it's really a, a culture. I, I can't, I can't put it any other clearer than that. It's uh, that culture is there. It's usually fostered yeah. over years of experience, yeah. doing it right, doing it, you know, uh, going too fast, falling down, um, and usually if that senior management has experienced that and they stick to those core values, yeah. then I think that that automatically spreads that when you enter a facility or a company, you're expected to question, you're expected to have a, a sense of, of quality that, and that if you go to somewhere else, if that culture is not there, you're just going to just bypass the FMEA as just being one of those items on the on the UPRI development list. Right. And, and then it becomes, it's it's such a poor FMEA that right. then you start saying, well, why do we do it? Now, on the other hand, I do see, I think you've seen this before, Adam, and through some of your, your classes we've had, um, some people 
take DFMEAs and FMEAs and go to the, they almost teach it from the book. And I think if you know the principles of DFMA and FMEA, you can speak from experience and, and not get hung up on your, your, your RM values, right? Right, Because then that turns into a meeting of a meeting of a meeting. Right. And it quickly gets uh, belittled to the point where you don't do it anymore or it's not respected. Yeah. But for a company that has a good new product development process that has a well thought out uh, best in business practice, but at the same time allows progress, yeah. then you have a nice balance of that. But to answer your original question, if that culture of that leadership is dissolved in any kind of way, then you're starting over again. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the thing. DFMEAs, I'm such a big advocate of them because they're so powerful and can help so much, but done incorrectly, you hope your competitors do them that way because they drain morale, they drain time, and they yield very little value. And it's kind of interesting, you know, you're talking about the education stuff and, you know, done FMEA education with your, you know, with one of your teams when you're back. I actually now I'm creating a FMEA facilitator course, not an FMEA course, meaning that there are stewards of FMEA that are always inside the company and are always running each DFMEA because I've found now through all these years that because of the pressures within an organization, a company, they always will ultimately risk getting derailed, right? It's hard for everybody, no matter how much they believe in the integrity of it and the value of it, you keep getting consistent pressure, um, you know, from the outside on time and resource and the actions actually really getting carried out versus getting filed away. Um, and then you get poor results, which then can easily justify not doing it again, right? right. So now I really almost require if, if I want to elevate you know, a company's DFMEA practices and how it improves product development, I say, nope, we're picking out these people, five people, six people. I'm putting them through this FMEA facilitator course, and they always are going to be the ones running FMEAs, and they're the stewards of it, and the integrity of it matters, and you know. And, and I think that's really the only way you can do that because those pressures are relentless. And as you said, with a lot of cultures, myself, I've engaged with companies where myself as a obviously very passionate reliability engineer, if you put me in some of these other roles, like of a project manager that I see or an R&D manager, I would throw reliability out the window so fast just to save my job. <laughs> right. I can't even tell you because leadership you know, we'll set up a, a program where for the project manager, they quite literally will, their bonus is tied to the time the market goal being hit. And that's it. Leadership thinks that we'll take all the goals and separate them out to different people. The reliability people have the reliability goal. The project managers have time to market, you know, well, that's, if I was a project manager, I'd be doing everything I could to not slow down this project. And you tell me you found a risk, something that you were worried about in a reliability test. I'd be like, well, we'll check that out later and release it in 2.0. I would do that quick just because I want to keep food on the table. Actually, you and I were just talking about our kids are our college age, and it's more, we were describing it, the fees as pallets of money. Um, so well, another that, example would be, you know, I, I love the concept of mistake proofing, right? Yeah. So and from a traditional quality perspective, uh, I don't want to inspect it in. I want to mistake proof it from happening. Yeah. You just wonder if, if that same logic could be applied to design and your product development. How do you mistake-proof yeah. a design or limit mistakes from happening so that when it goes out to market, you're not scrapping everything or it's not working or um, you know, you've, you've uh, sourced improperly? Um, mistake-proof it as early as possible, not just on the line, 
that's what I love to see. Yeah. You know, more of that work done up, up front. Well, that's, yeah. So, I mean, kind of when I think about that, to me, it's about variability. I mean, one definition of reliability is the study and control of how variability affects performance, right? You kind of start with the idea that the prototype works. The design works when everything's at perfect nominal conditions. So what we're really talking about is in high volume of manufacturing and high volume of use, variabilities in what happens with the variabilities, three common being manufacturing use and environment, right? So I think that that idea of having it be, you know, more fail-proof is about studying what variabilities matter and then either figuring out how to control the variability somehow or, or make the design extremely robust against it right and yeah, how many, how many times have you sat down and said "Ooh, that's a little too tight on that tolerance do you really need to no and and if it, if it's what if that's what's needed right so be it then you got to pick a supplier and a process to control it and that becomes your your core you got to own it but yeah. with everything else uh does it have to be that tight because adam you've seen it from a lot to lot machine to machine supplier to supplier air temperature to air temperature, it right. can impact what you would call a critical dimension uh, across the board. And that goes back to my original point, which is sometimes it's just not that one part. Yeah, It's all those parts that are a little bit maybe too tight. Yeah, That are not, you know, forget about the overlapping now. Forget about the, the tolerance stack ups. Those are all gone. Right. <laughs> you, right. You've eaten those up in the, you know, the, the first launch. Now right. you've sourced it to other places and you're having problems to source it because they can't meet it. And it's not just the variability of the parts. You mentioned, you know, crossing over variabilities and root causing an issue. It could be that you have a lot of parts that are the tolerances, you know, off by, you know, past the limit just a little bit, but it's only the ones that go to Florida that show the issue because of the, the temperature difference or the humidity difference or something, some other variable that when you're trying to root cause this makes it so difficult, right? You're starting to break down like a detective, like, okay, is geography a part of this? Is humidity a part of this? Is okay, but how come it's not consistent? And then figuring out what part has the tolerance that the manufacturing thing shifted that exposed it. And yeah, well, you've seen it. The, the things that get the most attention are the ones that people notice, right? Yeah. So, hey, that 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 shipment of materials of that component was shipped from California to Michigan. Yeah. And that part has to be uh, ultra in spec, can't have any deviations whatsoever. And you start seeing people doing packaging studies, drop tests, um, doing those uh, container temperature tests. Well, all those things are in existence because no one thought it was going to happen. Yeah. Right. But the first time you say someone to someone, we should do a drop test, a proper drop test, they cringe. Right. But if you do the due diligence of the product and you, you go through protecting what can happen, because um, it is your your asset at the end of the day, uh, you have a chance. But right, what I see so often is that the packaging is a good example of the obvious. It did not make it to the end location in its intended state. Right. So right. what do you do? You change the packaging. Yeah. Well, same thing goes for tolerances or machining or how to machine it. But those are, it's almost, you can't see it. It's a little bit more invisible. Yeah. Easier and that to, to the culture thing, right? Culture and mindset. And then the switching from the I want it to work to I want it not to work in my hands. Because it's eventually not going to work in somebody's hands. I want it to be mine. And I have to tell you, as a as a uh, working in a contract manufacturer 
manufacturer now, uh, we're exposed to lots of different uh, customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they all have different degrees of, of complexity mm-hmm. and, and knowledge of new product development and uh, halt testing. Uh, they all have different degrees of it. Um, but you can see definitely uh, that companies that really invest in the upfront testing, the life testing, the reliability testing, uh, they do tend to have a more stable outcome. Yeah, right. And it's the believing that the diet and exercise will get you farther along. But I bet you, like, as you said, a lot of people who have mandated that culture have had a few heart attacks and are hoping <laughs> to, to not, you know, to share. And hopefully other people don't have to have it, you know, um, that are a part of that, you know, as they come and guide new companies and, and create new cultures. Yeah. And you're right. It does. It comes down to culture because it is behavior. It is, you heard so much of what we talked about, right? We're technical people. And we've been speaking about basically psychology for this whole episode. And it's, it's, it's true. It, it's yeah. uh, as I told you, I've been in almost 30 years in quality and manufacturing and contract assembly. Uh, and um, yeah, it's, it definitely, it's a mindset and a culture. I just, I, I wish we can somehow transverse the culture into technical delivery yeah yeah repeatedly and over a course of a company over you know if a company's you know 25 years uh 25 years in, in the industry you have to cater to that you have to invest in that in the engineers that come on board so they can adopt those methods yeah. um, so it doesn't go off off track so easily yeah well, Nelson, this is great. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I'm so glad that we we're able to share this conversation we we're having with the audience. And uh, always good to hear somebody who has such great insight. Oh, yeah. It, it, I could write a book. And I might. Who knows? You should. <laughs> awesome. All right. Take care.